If you combine all of these reserves together, they constitute an area of about 200,000 square kilometers. I mean, if it was under one single management unit, it's probably one of the world's largest terrestrial protected areas. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Brown, who is in charge of an enormous program of wildlife rehabilitation and rewilding in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is huge, almost 10 times the size of Britain, a place that was known for its deserts, but also once upon a time had savannas akin to East Africa with ostriches and striped hyenas and oryx and gazelles, big predators including leopards and cheetahs. And a lot of that's gone since the arrival of motor cars and guns and subsequent overgrazing by domestic livestock. Stephen's work is really very, very exciting. And thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to come and chat to me about all of this. How did you find your way to Saudi Arabia? Well, it was a, it was a bit of a circuitous route. It sort of started in the UK, working on uh, conservation issues related to farmland birds. Then I was invited to go to Cambodia and I fell in love with Southeast Asia. So I worked in Southeast Asia for about 15 years on a whole variety of conservation projects. And then COVID happened, I turned 50, and there's a couple of sort of life-changing moments, you know, sat in one's basement for two years when one's used to traveling. And then this opportunity to came up to go and work in Saudi Arabia. And to be honest, I'd never ever thought that I would do conservation work in Saudi Arabia. But um, this, the project that was being talked about and being offered was just so amazing. And I thought, you know what, well, this sounds like a really good project to get involved with, particularly, you know, as, as I said, turning 50, it could be the last major project I get involved with. So I thought, why not? And here I am in Saudi Arabia. Where are you now? Which city? So currently based in a, in a relatively small town called Alula, right out in the sort of northwest part of Saudi Arabia, not too far from the Jordanian border, not too far from the Red Sea. And the northwest of Saudi Arabia is sort of different from the rest of the peninsula in that it's more mountainous, it's greener, gets fractionally more rainfall. How degraded is that landscape as compared with how it might once have been? I mean, if you go back far enough in time, I mean, not not, not like millions of years ago, only like a few thousand years ago, maybe a couple of thousand years ago, it was, as, as you said earlier, it was, it was like savannah. There was green fields, herds of grazing animals. But more recently, of course, things have changed. So with, with um, as you mentioned, uh, overgrazing, hunting, and then global climate change, it is pretty degraded now. I mean, many of the animals that once lived here, fed on the, on the grasses, that they've become extinct. The grasses have been overgrazed by uh, you know, livestock. So it, it is a very degraded habitat that I've inherited, that me and my team have inherited. What about tree cover? Is there any tree cover remaining? And, and is it a place for trees? It is. That was, to me, the most surprising thing. When I flew into into Alula, I thought I was flying into the desert. So, you know, I was expecting sand, basically, sand dunes. When I arrived, it was like flying into almost like the Grand Canyon. I don't know if, if you or, or the people listening are sort of familiar with places like uh, sort of Moab in the US with sort of the, the, the arches and Canyonlands National Parks. It's very, very similar to that sort of deep wadis, high mountains, volcanoes, lava fields. And then, uh, and then in those wadis, a lot of trees. I mean, it, it's it's not quite reminiscent of African savanna, but it could well be. And in fact, some of the wadis are almost like walking through forest. Uh, I visited one at the weekend, which was full of um, figs, ficus um, trees, and it literally was closed canopy. Uh, yeah, very much walking through a woodland. So a wadi is kind of a seasonal stream or river runs through the landscape. 
Exactly. So when it rains, all the water runs through those wadis. And, and a consequence of that is some of those wadis hold the water. So they tend to be the greenest, lushest places uh, in the desert. And what about wetlands? And Saudi Arabia is a member of Ransar and, and, and the Convention on, on Wetlands and has some pretty sizable wetlands. Are they up there in the northwest or elsewhere in the country? So there are there are a lot of coastal wetlands and there are some some of some inland, inland wetlands as well. But what there are a lot of, and I was very surprised by this, is these is these seasonal wetlands. So we we had we had some very heavy rains in August, which was quite a surprise for everybody. Um, and, and as a result of that, th- these oases did pop up all over the um, all over the desert. And I visited one of them. I think it was September time, and it was literally like going to Minsmere in 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 Suffolk, you know, the RSPB reserve. There was so many wader species. There's probably 10 wader species of waders and probably four or 500, 600 birds, just like being, say, in, in Europe at, a, at an RSPB reserve. And what people live in that part of Saudi Arabia and what do they typically do on the land? So historically, there would have been Bedouins uh, who would have had, you know, would have lived seasonally, vary, varied between living in the desert in tents, maybe having a more of a base for the winter with livestock, sort of camels, sheep, goats. But obviously, more recent times, people are, are more sort of urbanised now. So, if you look at the town of Aluda that I'm based in, I mean, going back maybe a hundred, two hundred years, up to sort of thousands of years ago, there was very much the wadi where people would have lived in the summer um, in their mud houses um, with their fields, growing dates and <laughs> some surprising things like oranges, mangoes, um, a whole variety of vegetables. But then surprisingly, it gets very cold here in the winter. So people then move from the wadis into the more sort of stone-built old town, as it's known here, which is very much sort of, as you'd expect in an Arabic town to look like with sort of you know little little alleyways and souks and the such like. But then people move in the 60s, they sort of move more into more modern houses. And again, perhaps in the more post sort of oil period into much more sort of villas and conventional housing. And, and the amount of people actually on the land has reduced dramatically. I mean, people don't make a living very much from grazing. It's sort of, for some people, it's more of a hobby, but there are still some that are dependent on you know, herding sheep, herding camels, etc. And have the numbers of grazing animals declined as people have left the land? Or, or do those that remain have much larger herd sizes than previously? Well, that's the problem. So I think what happened here, and this was the biggest problem for Alula, was it has got these amazing, these, these sort of tremendous wilderness areas, which did receive annual rains. And when, they, when it did rain, grasses and all the plants would flourish. And um, at the moment, we've had, we've had loads of, we've had a lot of rain this winter. And the deserts are, are literally green. It's like walking through meadows in Europe. It's it's unbelievable. People knew about that. So, so seasonally, people would have brought thousands. I mean, literally thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of sheep, goats from places like, well, other, other neighboring countries. Um, some of the bigger cities brought them to the countryside. They would have just walked across the desert, eating everything in their path. And once they'd finished, once they'd eaten everything, they'd be put back onto trucks and taken back to the uh, countries where the people came from, all the cities where they came from. So they would have completely denuded all of vegetation. So in those in those cases, there was thousands of uh, animals would have been grazing. Now, traditionally, people have flocks are more like, you know, dozens or, or low hundreds uh, of sheep and goats. So that's good news, that, that the pressure of grazing by domestic livestock has naturally eased off in, in the landscapes where you're working. Very much so. So, so I think there is certainly a decrease in 
just sort of local grazing. We're in a position in, within our Lula that we're able to control and regulate what happens here. And as a result, we have uh, been able to sort of pass legislation that limits uh, people from outside the county bringing, sheep, bringing their grazing animals in. So as a result, external grazers can no longer come. Local grazers have smaller smaller herds as, as they move away from a sort of rural agrarian lifestyle to a more sort of city lifestyle. Uh, so yes, pressure has reduced. So what has the Saudi government under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman decided to do in Alula? It goes even beyond sort of Alula. I mean, as, as many people are probably aware now, there is this thing called the Saudi 2030 vision. And one of the pillars is, is to move away from a dependency on income from oil and looking at other, other income streams, one of which is tourism. So the area here of Alula has a huge um, human history going back at least 200,000 years more recently, sort of, I mean, from the 200,000 years ago up to the present day, there's been a succession of different uh, civilizations, you know, be it Dadanite, um, Nabataean. Nabataean is one that's particularly of interest because people will know, know of Petra. So that so Petra was the Nabataean capital in the north and Alula was a Nabataean capital in the south. So we have buildings very, very similar to the, to the rock carved buildings you see in Petra. They are here in, in Alula. And that was because of that sort of history and those amazing buildings, Hegra, which is the site we have here, was made a World Heritage Site. It was the, it was the Kingdom, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's first uh, World Heritage Site. So as a result of that, Alula was identified as an area to build tourism with the hook being Hegra. Um, and then, so it was identified as one of the sort of giga projects or one of the main projects under the Saudi 2030 vision. And a Royal Commission, the Royal Commission for Alula was formed as a government department and given complete jurisdiction to manage and to rehabilitate this area, which is 25,000 square kilometers, which for Europeans is about the size of Belgium, for people in the region is about two and a half times the size of Lebanon. And for those in the US, it's about the size of Vermont. So it's a, it's a very large area. And, and is the government using the term rewilding? Because effectively, this is one of the biggest rewilding projects in the world. We are. I mean, it's called yeah, re-greening, rewilding. There's a whole number of different terms used, but it is basically, to all intent and purpose, a, a rewilding project. So when we think of savannah landscapes, albeit ones that are crisscrossed by these lush wadis, we think of trees, we think of scrub, we think of abundant birds and wildflowers at certain times of year. We also think of communities of grazing animals and predators that hunted them. What were those species and what's their status now? So what you mentioned is the vision we have. So the vision for the Royal Commission for Alula is it's a, it's a vision that will run up until 2035. So by 2035, we will hopefully have in place what you just outlined. At the moment, we are pretty much ground zero. We are very degraded habitats. Probably most natural herbivores are either extinct or pretty close to being extinct. Uh, and, and all of the large predators are pretty much absent. There is one exception, which is which is Arabian wolf. They, they seem to be doing very well, probably as a legacy of being able to switch to, to livestock. So at the moment, things are at their lowest. Well, they were probably a year ago at their lowest ebb, but we've been working very hard for the last year and we're starting to see a turnaround. So the grazing animals, there are two kinds of gazelles. There are two species of gazelle, sand gazelle and Arabian gazelle, or called the Idmi gazelle as well. Uh, there is Arabian oryx, which is the big, beautiful whites with the long, massive sort of curved horns and uh, Nubian ibex, which is sort of very similar to a goat that uh, can, can defy all logic by climbing up a vertical rock face. And all four of those species are present in low numbers in the landscape today. 
Well, they are now because we've introduced some. But if we didn't introduce them, pretty much the gazelle and the oryx were hunted out. You know, Arabian oryx was pretty much extinct. Well, it was extinct in the wild and it's been brought back, you know, through years of sort of uh, conservation breeding and reintroduction. It was extinct from the landscape here. It was overhunted. So sand gazelle, Arabian gazelle and oryx were extinct here locally. And a few ibex were hanging on because they, they survived high up in the mountains and, and got away from the hunter's guns. Is ibex the same as Arabian tahar? Similar. So the Arabian tahar is a kind of mountain goat that lives on the Arabian Peninsula. Is, are they present in your landscape? They're not, no. They're, 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 I think they're further to the north um, and maybe around the, yeah, more the Emirates area. And then of the guild of carnivores, so you said the Arabian wolf is doing well, which is presumably a subspecies of Eurasian wolf. What about striped hyena? Is that present still in the landscape? So had you have asked me that question about three days ago, I would have said no. So interestingly, what we're doing is we have a big project to bring back the Arabian leopard. And in terms of identifying the key sites to bring that species back, we've been doing uh, camera trapping surveys the whole length of the west coast of um, Arabia along the sort of mountain chain that runs from the Yemen border all the way up to the uh, Jordanian border. We've been doing two and a, almost two years worth of camera trapping now. We have in those camera traps captured hyenas to the south, hyenas to the north, but no hyenas here. But three days ago, we, we captured our first striped hyena in here in Alula. So that was great news for us. We also have Caracal, um, Arabian wolf, as I said. Now we, now we know we have striped hyena. That's, that's wonderful news. And the, the hunting of all of these animals is strictly illegal now across Saudi Arabia. Hunting is no longer the issue that it once was. In theory, it's not the issue because the government has taken it very seriously and is now imposing very large fines. I mean, probably tens of millions of dollars fines if you, for example, hunted an Arabian leopard. So hunting isn't as much of a problem as it was because there is the disincentive not to do it through the fine system. And also places like here in Alula, we do have... Um, we have a ranger force that is, that's here to sort of enforce the laws and, and, the, and the government has set up a special forces for environmental security, which is a... They're, they're effectively police, they're in military fatigues, they carry guns and they, they very much enforce the law here to protect the animals from hunters. And that's effective. So hunting has more or less disappeared from the landscape? More or less. I won't say it's completely gone. We, we have had one incident recently where one of the animals we released with a satellite collar was unfortunately hunted, but that was, you know, it is very few and far between now. Whereas I think historically, every Bedouin, every Saudi pretty much carried a gun and pretty much fed themselves off the land. Stephen, can you tell me a little bit about the captive breeding that's going on? What, what species, where, what, what's the emphasis? So at the moment, the, the real focus for us primarily is the Arabian leopard. So we have a jurisdiction over Alula County under the remit of the Royal Commission for Alula. But we also have been granted the remit to be responsible for Arabian leopard for the whole of the kingdom. So we're responsible for identifying sites where they may remain, sites where they should be potentially reintroduced. And then we've been given responsibility for conservation breeding of that species. So we have currently 19 Arabian leopards in captivity. Uh, four of those are cubs that were bred in the last 20 months. Um, and that's that's our main focus at the moment. So we have one facility at a place called Taif, which has just been completely renovated and made much, much better for the animals there. We're also planning, um, starting this year, to build a bigger facility here in Alula, which will be a, you know, a sort of cutting-edge, world-leading breeding centre, which we will hopefully breed all of, the, all of the herbivores we mentioned, so things like the oryx, the gazelle, the ibex, as well as Arabian leopards, 
and other things like hyrax and rabbits and hares and even some fish, some local endemic fish we hope to breed here to reintroduce. What's the status of Arabian leopards in the wild? How many remain? So within the entire region, the last official estimate was 200, of which they said about 100 were in Saudi Arabia. We've done extensive surveys, the length and breadth of the former range um, over a number of years. And unfortunately, we haven't camera trapped a single individual leopard, which would almost imply that they're extinct. I don't think they are. It is a huge country with huge areas of wilderness. So I'd like to think there are some still out there, but I would have thought in the kingdom, the numbers are 10 or 20 individuals. That's just my my guess. The official estimate is about 100. So in, in Spain, the, the Iberian lynx, which is endemic to the Iberian Peninsula, was down to about 90 individuals. And the governments of Spain and Portugal, backed by the European Commission, trapped a number of them and, and established captive breeding facilities. And that whole program has been an enormous success. There are now estimated to be around 1,300 Iberian lynx in the wild. Are you learning from those projects that have been carried out successfully elsewhere in the world? For example, in respect of training the young leopards up so that eventually they can be released out into the wild? Yeah, that's absolutely what we will be doing. I mean, we're very fortunate. One of my members of my team has worked for 20 years. He, he comes from Portugal. He's he's worked for 20 years on big cat sort of captive breeding uh, reintroduction, uh, working both on the lynx and on the um, Persian leopard. So he's bringing a lot of experience with him from that previous work into this team. And one of the things we will be creating will be these training facilities where where we will be training leopards to start on small prey, work their way up. And, and only if they graduate from sort of a leopard boot camp will we actually release them if, if they don't graduate there's no point releasing them because they because they will be doomed to fail and they're better kept in captivity for breeding it's just too exciting for words Stephen. um when you create a marine protected area and you remove all commercial fishing and other environmental hazards from that area quite quickly wildlife recovers to the extent you get you get a spillover effect and fishermen find that they're catching more fish in the areas where they're still allowed to take their boats than they ever were previously. Is it possible that wildlife in the Alula area will reach an abundance that creates this kind of spillover effect and that wildlife will recolonize down that mountain range all the way to Yemen, up towards Jordan and eastwards towards the rest of Saudi Arabia? I mean, uh, that would be, you know, manna from heaven for the Arabian leopard. And that will be, you know, that's what we're aiming for. And that, but that I, I fear is many, many decades away until the population recovers that much. But in terms of, you know, other species, we are absolutely seeing that, as you said, you know, so one of our reserves, which was so degraded and we need to see um, results very quickly. It's 1500 square kilometers. And we, we completely fenced it with 250 kilometers of fencing. Now that's not ideal. I know it's a bit like fortress conservation, but we need to do something very, very urgently. We put that fence up by doing that, it excluded a lot of the, the, the grazers who came from outside of Alula. People who live in Alula can still use the area to move their camels, for example. But within 12 months, the vegetation had gone from pretty much bare sand to today. If you go to there today, I can show you areas where you'll be walking knee deep in, in lush vegetation. Already um, in response to that, some of the animals we've released have started to breed. So some of the gazelle are starting to breed. In good years, they will produce two um, calves, two fawns. But... If the conditions are right, we're hoping that these nature reserves that we're creating will produce a surplus of animals. And then we're not working in isolation. So you have you have the Royal Commission for Alula, based here around Alula, but, but we have other these GIGA projects. So we have the Red Sea Development Project to our immediate uh, west. We have Prince Mohammed bin Salman Rural Reserve. We have Neom. We have King Salman Rural Reserve. Sorry, we have uh, 
another very big reserve to the north. If you combine all of these reserves together, they constitute an area of about 200,000 square kilometers. Now, all of those reserves are being managed for wildlife. We're all sharing our practice with each other. We're all talking to each other. We're, we're looking to connect our reserves within Alula to each other and connect our reserves in Alula to the reserves around us. That will create an area. I mean, if it was under one single management unit, it's probably one of the world's largest terrestrial protected areas. What we're hoping is, is that what we will do in these, in these reserves, individually we'll be producing an excess, which will spill into other reserves. Then those reserves will then spill into other countries, maybe north into Jordan or into other parts of Saudi Arabia. So we will be having a not only a country uh, national impact, but a regional impact as well. And then once we've got the prey base up, then of course the leopards are free to then roam and feed and, and breed and spread as they wish. And when you say get the prey base up, these these are obviously semi-desert ecosystems. In some places, they're out-and-out out desert ecosystems. What kind of abundance are we talking? I mean, how, how will this feel to a visitor in 15, 20 years? Presumably, it won't be the kind of abundance that you see in the Serengeti. It won't be. I think in some years it can be. I think when, when it rains a lot and you have very good growth, as I said, you know, the, the species do, the, the, the gazelle do produce twins and you get very, very rapid uh, population increase. The flip of that is in years when there's um, very low rain and less vegetation, of course, you get you get large die-offs. So you get these big peaks and troughs. What we're hoping is, is that the peaks and troughs will come and go, but we'll have the, but the line will slowly go upwards so that the population, the underlying population size will increase. What about cheetahs, Stephen? There were cheetahs through the Arabian Peninsula. Is, is it a possibility that the cheetah can make a return one day? Cheetahs is one of the species that we are definitely looking at. We had very early days, we had some, you know, an organization came in and did an assessment of the potential for biodiversity conservation within the Lula. One of the species they identified was cheetah. A cheetah was, was present here. The last one was shot not too far from here in 1976, a female and a cub, which makes you think there must have been a male. But anyway, apparently that, that, that female and, and cub were the last two that were re recorded as being shot. So it's not, so it's not, I mean, it's within my lifetime. Um, there was cheetahs here. There was a recent discovery not too far from here to the north near a place called Tabuk, a couple hundred kilometers from here. There was a cave was found with 17 mummified cheetah corpses within it. And that's a bit gruesome, I know, but where, where it becomes interesting is, is we can use the DNA from those to look at the DNA that they, now, now are they actually African cheetahs or are they Asiatic cheetahs? Are they more analogous to, say, the Northern African cheetahs? Are they more analogous to the Southern? Who knows what they are? When we find out, one of the things we're very keen to do, some of the work has already been set up by reintroductions in India. Um, we're hoping to follow that and, and one day release cheetahs back into Alula. Wouldn't that be extraordinary? I mean, the cheetahs range was far, far larger than, than, the, than the range we see today, mostly in Southern Africa and a few in North Africa. I mean, the, the dominant predator of the great steppes of Uzbekistan is thought to have been the cheetah not so long ago. So that, that's spectacular. Does the project that you're working on and this wider story of rewilding in Saudi Arabia have support all the way from the very top? It's absolutely from the top. There is this thing established, it's called the Saudi Green Initiative, that, that very much is at the national level, that feeds into the Middle East Green Initiative, which is the, the regional sort of target setting uh, and monitoring. You know, within that, you know, we have our small parts to pay, so we're, we're planting trees, for example, we're planting 10 million trees by 2035, that will feed into the ambition of Saudi Arabia to plant 20 billion trees. Absolutely what we do on the ground feeds up to that uh, national target, and that Saudi Green Initiative 
is, 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 is yeah, a fundamental part of the Saudi 2030 vision. And, and of course, the, the big cat specialist NGO Panthera has been integrally involved as well in establishing captive breeding for leopards in Arabia and, and ultimately will be involved in the reintroduction process, presumably. Yes, very much. I mean, we, we partner. So we, we have the responsibility, but we partner closely with Panthera. So they're providing a lot of the scientific basis for our for our work. But also they are now sort of helping us by managing our captive breeding facility. So yes, Panthera are very key to the work we're doing. And we also work through another organization called Catmosphere, which which raises awareness globally. So there was a, a whole load of events uh, on 10th February, which is the Arabian Leopard Day. So we we do things all around the world to raise global awareness of the leopard. And then we also established uh, something called the Arabian Leopard Fund to fund research and work on the on the species throughout the region. You mentioned earlier that, that Saudi Arabia plans on planting 20 billion trees. Presumably those are not in Saudi Arabia. A chunk of them are, but is, is that is that goal across the whole region? Is there a kind of rewilding Arabia initiative in the offing? Oh yes, very much so. So un- under the Middle East Green Initiative, uh, I can't remember what the what the regional target is, but it is tens of billions of trees to be planted across the region. Uh, I think in, here in Saudi Arabia itself, I think the number is is ten billion in Saudi Arabia. So there's a whole range of projects. So all of the big projects like us here in Alula, the Red Sea Global, we're all planting you know, millions of trees, feeding up to that target, that national target. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This is really one of the most exciting rewilding projects in the world. I love the idea of travelling to Saudi Arabia and experiencing a safari of the kind that we might experience in North Africa or South Africa. I always had the impression that the Arabian Peninsula was just desert, you know, 1,001 nights, sand dunes. But as we've learned with Stephen Brown, in fact, a lot of the coasts and the kind of higher elevations were in fact seasonal dry grasslands, more savanna than desert. And the aggregations of wildlife were far greater than anything I had imagined. The oryx, the gazelles, leopards. The work that Saudi Arabia is doing, led by Stephen and his team, is astonishing in, in its ambition and its scale. And I've really enjoyed having Stephen with us. If you're enjoying this series, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast platform. Give us a review, share it with your friends and family. All these things really matter. Next time, I'm going to be talking to a remarkable lady called Astrid Vargas, who conceived and put together the effort by Spain and Portugal to save the world's rarest big cat, the Iberian lynx. It's an amazing story. Please join us. Please join us.